This is episode 39 of the We Talked About This podcast, and today we have Mike and Paul. Gentlemen, it's been a while since the three of us were on an episode together. Welcome. Go ahead, Yeah, Paul. glad to have us all here. This is great. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me we on. A, yeah, we've, we've got a full agenda today. I don't know if we're going to get through it all, so I'm just going to talk about or mention or state what we're going to talk about today. And Paul, you brought a topic in today called overzealous parents in sports, if I'm describing that correctly. Yeah, I think that hits the nail on the head there. All right. And then uh, childhood idols. And this one came from a friend, a uh, new listener, Andrew, who listened to our show and was kind enough to send uh, a couple of topic requests. So he wanted to hear us talk a little bit about childhood idols and, you know, did you have any, and would, did you meet them actually was the 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 crux of that is have you ever met one of your childhood idols and you know did that meet expectations or was it disappointing so we're going to share a little bit about that then we're going to talk about what we're watching and if we have time we'll finish up with some strange news That's so good. paul i'm gonna i'm gonna hand it over to you overzealous parents and sports why this topic where did it come from and uh what do you what do you want to uh tackle around this this subject yeah, thanks. I thought this was an intriguing topic to tackle. And the reason why, the reason that prompted me to to bring this up was because of the, um, it was a biography that I watched recently about Tiger Woods. And I suppose it's appropriate that we're talking about Tiger Woods because today is uh, Masters Sunday, biggest golf tournament of the year. Uh, Tiger Woods, as we know, is not playing this year because of injuries suffered in his car accident. But Tiger Woods, he's a really interesting guy. And where I'm going with this um, was that the documentary talked a lot about his early life. And for those who haven't heard of the name of Earl Woods, uh, Earl Woods was Tiger's father. And he was the man very much responsible for, I guess, creating Tiger, uh, the, the man who we know today is, is the, the fierce competitor in the world of golf. And the documentary, it portrayed him in a not-so-flattering light in terms of the, the, the means in which he, he, he directed Tiger into, into the game of golf. And I, I suppose I'm, let's talk about Tiger. We'll talk a little bit about Earl Woods first, and then that can sort of lead into the bigger discussion as to overzealous sports parents. But the reason I want to talk about Earl Woods was because here's a guy that had his child playing golf before he was the age of two years old. And Tiger's life, he was so immersed in the game of golf that he never really had the experience of being able to enjoy his childhood. Or at least that's what the documentary sort of portrayed. So wait, so did they actually say that where they, he didn't get a childhood or do we interpret that from what you well, saw? Well, they had a lot of interviews and it was a pretty in-depth analysis. So who's to say in terms of how much truth? Inter inter there, inter if, interviews with who, Paul? Um, various family friends, um, see, okay. people that had been connected, that, that had known Tiger personally throughout his childhood. Uh, people that had observed this firsthand. So, assuming that at least most or, or all of this documentary may or may not be true, let, let's sort of go on the premise that it could be. Um, we're still talking about a, a, a father that 
pretty much predetermined his son's destiny from the age of like five years old. I think there's a uh, video footage of Tiger is three years old, um, meeting with Bob Hope in some kind of a charity golf classic or something like that. And, and it was pretty much said at the time that here's a three year old kid who's destined to make the, the PGA tour. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure to put on, on a kid. Um, so in this example, you have Tiger Woods who, was predetermined that he was going to be a professional golfer to the point where, you know, I guess it was saying that he didn't really have a childhood. He was forbidden from playing other sports because that would take his focus away from golf. It was a very strict upbringing in the sense that he didn't really have a lot of uh, friends, uh, a lot of, he didn't have a, a very active social life because golf was such a, a, a dominating part of, of his life. This is when it's, he got older, I assume, like maybe into his adolescence or, or well, you mean even is, like as a, even as, even as a kid, it, okay. it implies that even when he was six, seven years old, that he was expected to practice golf a couple of hours okay. a, a day every, when he would come home from school type of thing. So this kind of begs a lot of different questions here. So at first glance, one would think that this would be wrong in the sense that parents forcing kids into, into sports, almost in a fanatical sense in that we've always, well, we certainly heard about parents that lecture and criticize their kids. All of us, well, we're, from Canada where hockey is, is a huge sport. We've probably seen that firsthand where there's a lot of, uh, a lot of Canadian hockey parents that are, are pretty fanatical about, uh, the, how much their kids should be dedicating to the sport. But it also got me to thinking that if there wasn't someone like an Earl Woods, would Tiger Woods have been the person that he was in yeah. the sense that as a sports fan, I've enjoyed watching Tiger Woods. I think he's done a lot of great things and, and he's been great for the, for the game of golf. If, if Earl Woods wasn't in the background, would Tiger Woods have been anywhere close to the man that he was? You don't know. Right. You don't know. That's a great question. Yeah. And, and here's, here's what I'm thinking about this. Okay. So number one, you mentioned predetermined. So when you say predetermined, you mean his dad determined this? based on his what he was seeing already in his child's development yeah or was did he yeah. just say i don't know what this kid has but i'm gonna make him into a golfer well there's no doubt that he had a natural talent and that was a, two exhibited. years old how, do, how would you know a kid had a natural talent at golf yeah exactly like he obviously had a keen interest in the game at and two? yeah yeah and apparently yeah as i said at three years old he was swinging a golf club Probably better than most adults. But was he so there, was he copying his father? Is the point? Like a, you put a kid in a room at two years old, and your dad is a fishmonger, and the kid's not going <laughs> to like search for like how many kids are going to go looking for a golf club and pick it up? He, they're going to pick up a fish and pretend like to be like that, probably, right? I, that's no, absolutely, my, that's, yeah. So yeah, I'm thinking kids. there was some rub off there purposely for sure for sure kids are going to copy what their parents are interested in that doesn't mean that their personality is it's still their own they can say yeah they yeah. respond to it or they don't so obviously he responded well, exactly to it, but yeah i think he was no probably, he he, I, I don't he know, responded I'm just assuming yeah. no no for sure he he responded to the game of golf but the fact that pretty much at the age of three four years old 
already there was an inclination that, hey, this kid's going to be playing in the PGA Tour. Yeah. And to have that hovering over your head for pretty much your entire life. Okay, so to 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 bring this back a little bit towards overzealous parents in sports is is there a personal angle here which you want to sort of use him to set up or are we going to talk about famous personal parents well the the personal angle on this is that i've seen it firsthand amongst my own friends and even within my own family starting that I've young seen maybe not quite so young but i, I can certainly see at at a fairly young age um the the pressures yeah uh, and the expectations that parents put on their kids that you need to succeed in this game that I'm signing you up for hockey or whatever it might be and and this is you don't really have a choice in the matter yeah a lot of people think that okay well the kids like the sport but I think it's more in many cases it's parents that are living vicariously through their kids yeah, I think I've, the parents sometimes well, want it more that, than the kids you know. do I think, yeah. So one of the one of the things I want to go back to that you said was is would Tiger Woods be who he is today if it had not been for this this overzealous approach to how his father seized his life and says you are going to be a, a a golfer and did everything in his power to get him golfing as much as possible, teaching him the game. Would he, Tiger Woods be around today as a go, as a world famous golfer, had it not been for Earl Woods? Quite what he, I mean, without the without, I don't know. Like, well, Wayne Gretzky's father as another example of a an involved parent who also recently just passed. He did. Mm-hmm. He did. Ho- hockey's dad, right? Yes. Or whatever they yeah. called him, or Canada's hockey dad, and. The question I looked up, tried to find information on Walter Gretzky to see if he was known to be an overzealous father as far as Wayne is concerned. Because I'd argue that Wayne is just as good at hockey as Tiger is at golf. Yeah. If not, Mm -hmm. I'd I'd put him higher, to be honest. But um, would nothing in the material I could find suggest that he was overzealous or pounded into Wayne. You've got to practice. This is your life. He provided him with guidance. He built a rink in his backyard. He was dedicated to him, but I didn't see anything about overzealous. Yeah. And Wayne Gretzky became Wayne Gretzky. How many people could become the top of the top of the top if they have no personal interest in something? Because I think... To some extent, we're arguing whether or not the parent is shaping and molding the child, whether or not they want it or not. If a child literally does have no interest in something, I don't think that they could pursue something to the point of being the best in the world. I don't I, think I they would I reach that. Otherwise, I, I, all of China would just take over everything mm-hmm. because they're driven in – I'm talking communist China, where kids are – or North Korea – they're driven like this. You don't have a choice. This is being selected for you, and you will. Now they achieve great results, but um, it's still the odd person who becomes the super pinnacle of that bunch, right? So yeah, to your point, Mike. There, there's always going to be cream that rises to the top. In that, there's going to be people that have incredible talent that are, are going to be professional athletes or whatever it is, whatever field that they're in. I think the problem here is that there's a lot of overzealous parents that push their kids into thinking that one day you're going to play in the NHL, but their kids are really not that good. 
there's so much competition to be able to reach a point where you're a professional athlete, but yeah. there's a lot of parents out there that think that their kids are going to be professional athletes it, and putting that pressure and, and the criticism and, you know, parents lecturing kids after a game, oh, you play like garbage, them that certain type of thing. foods. So, so, yeah. There's a documentary on Netflix about this that uh, they had like the kids were eating protein shakes at nine years old and trying to get their, you know, to build their muscle. Um, but that's a good point was, well, there's a few things. I mean, there's the whole living vicariously through aspect of this, you know, a, a father who never really made it. And um, I, I do, let's just talk about personal experience for one sec. Yeah. My father was very supportive of me in my baseball interests and but never was a, a pushy father he was never dragging me out to the ball field making me play i wanted to play i was dragging him to the ball yeah, field i was dragging anybody that would come to the ball field i would do it in the sun blazing heat anytime but i loved the sport right would i have become a major league baseball player had my dad been a not so crazy overzealous parent who got me to do what be out there even more i don't think so I don't think so. No, I think that's why I'm saying it has to be in the person to want. Uh, there are exceptions, though. If you look at this, look at the things that we require children to do that uh, they don't, sh or in my opinion, they shouldn't have a choice at to a certain degree. Children shouldn't have a choice of whether or not they go for schooling. It's This isn't whether they want or don't want. They're, they're forced to do this. They are forced to act like reasonable people, hopefully, getting up, living their life, keeping rooms clean, this type of things. And to the degree they're not forced, well, the, re the results are apparent in some people's lives, other people's not. So, the degree to which parents uh, force or don't force, I'm removing the parental and saying, in anybody's life, there are some things that are forced on us. We have to go to school and you have to abide by the laws of society. Uh, you can choose not to do those things, but there's repercussions. But uh, some people want and some people don't want. What I'm getting to is that um, just the fact that we're forced to go to school does not make you a good student. It still has to be something that you choose to do and won't always be something that you want to do. You can be a good student regardless because you are forced to add more time, sit at home, do your math, focus, that kind of thing. So... It's a complex answer, there is, and especially since the the group that we're statistically comparing it against is like ah Tiger Woods and who else? Like it's not that we can say well here's the twenty five thousand people that are the number one best golfer to compare against and how mm -hmm. their lives. It's like one person. How do you compare someone against them? I guess mm -hmm. other great golfers and what their lives are. I don't have that information personally. Yeah, in the cases of like Tiger Woods and Wayne Gretzky, they're they're the exceptions to the rule. They're the exceptional athletes that are, you know, generational athletes, I suppose you would say. The problem here is that the parents that think... What rule exactly, Paul? The exceptions well, to in, what in, rule? In terms of, of being exceptional people that are going to... Maybe not. Ha have, have the talent and the drive to succeed, probably no matter okay, what. I agree there, but whether yeah, or not they're exceptional in the, person. Yeah, the yeah. problem is the other 99% of athletes who are talented but perhaps borderline as to whether or not they would even have a consideration to be a, a, a professional athlete 
it's in that world where there's a lot of gray areas, where there's the overzealous parents that that think that their kid's going to play in the NHL one day, but really the kid is going to be burnt out by the time he's 14 and end up hating the game because of the pressures that they're put under. Well, it's not the pressure though, Paul. I just, that's where I, I think my, it, to be clear, my point is not the pressure. If you want to do it, the stresses or the stress or pressure is, it's all relative. It's something that enriches you. If you do not like something, that's where that becomes an issue. But some kids may not have a choice. They may do it because they don't want to disappoint their parents or it's because it's expected of them. Yeah. And then that's why a lot of kids get burnt out because they yeah. reach, once they reach that age where they just don't want to do it anymore, Agreed. where they, they finally are old enough to say no to their parents. Agreed. So I agree. This is a very, very complex uh, where, scenario here. Now, you guys have uh, children. I don't. So uh, your, your children are in sports? And to some degree, any organized sports? Do you see other parents? And what's your overall sense of it when when you're watching them in arenas and things like yeah. that? Yeah, well, I can speak to that. So I, when I was, and I will admit, as a father, before my son was out of the womb, I was, I had dreams he would be a hockey player or a baseball player, and you know, clearly, as time went on, I think that you know, is not going to be um, possible. So you, so you knew he was a son before he was out of the womb? Just <laughs> Well, we did actually. Okay, but, that's, uh, I'm just clarifying. <laughs> like, I was like, well, you were even de- pre- no, we, predetermining yeah. his sex. That's great. No, we were just told I, by I the, get uh, it. I'm just the kidding. Um, uh, ultrasound technician. Yes. But, uh, Some people don't want to know. That's why. What I, what I have there. viewed through experience was watching definitely, especially when you get into these rep hockey leagues, you definitely saw mm-hmm. parents around who were expecting their kids to you know be ultra successful, probably go to the NHL. And I know <laughs> on several occasions, the commissioner or whatever of our league said, I'm just going to let everybody in this room know right now, nobody's kid is going to the NHL. Okay? And he just just set the tone and i know i guarantee there were people in that room that said no that's not true my son will go my son will i know that there would have been people in that room that said no no mine will and you know if you look statistically at this i think there was a, a statistic that showed in 1972 i should have brought this in and i didn't think we were going to get get in this direction but 1972 they did an analysis of all kids who were born in 1972 and they they showed i think it was 10,000 kids were playing hockey in canada in 1972 in the first 3 years 5,000 disappeared off the list. And then 10 years later, 3,000 disappeared off the list. And they just showed, and I think they determined five people made it to the NHL in the 10,000. Right. It didn't have a statistically, it it wasn't like a baby boom in terms of how many people, you know? Yeah. They just showed this, the staggering numbers of how few people get to this level it's like in january everyone goes to health clubs and then by february 15th <laughs> most people aren't there anymore <laughs> or i did you so, hear guys here's the same thing about how many people took up the art of archery after the hunger games it's that kind of thing right and then it all dropped away yeah but especially in a, in a country like canada where the focus is so much on hockey and yeah to clark's point there is it, 
quite a difference between house league, which is just recreational versus rep sports where that's very much a competitive level. And to that- see it, I, I, I've seen it from friends who have kids in rep sports at how competitive and how vindictive and, and evil some of the parents can be where they, they shut people out of, uh, out of their lives if they feel that their kid is a threat to their kid making the team type of thing. Yes. Uh, it, it's incredible that the politics that goes on, well, it, it really is quite eye-opening. Uh, Paul, let, let me actually, let, let's, to wrap this one up maybe, because we've got a lot of other things in limited time, uh, how many of us personally experienced our own things with our own fathers or own mothers and the pressure we personally had? And what we did about anything. It doesn't have to be sports, but it could be sports. It could be theater sports, if that's a thing for you. Or it could be violin, expanding it. Just that, were you ever forced into something? And uh, were, were, your, were your parents specifically overzealous to any degree whatsoever? Well, I think that kind of <laughs> might lead into a, a bigger conversation that we can tackle for another podcast. But in my situation, it wasn't so much sports, but my parents kind of pressured me to join activities that my brother had been interested in. Uh, for example, army cadets. Right. That was really the only time in my life that I felt that I was truly like pressured or, or pushed in a direction to say, this is what you will be doing. Um, was the fact that they wanted me to, to join army cadets. And it, it wasn't, to make a long story short, it wasn't, wasn't my cup of tea. I gave it about a year or so and, and ended up dropping out. But yeah, that was, that was an instance where I felt there was some pressure from my parents. But otherwise, I was pretty lucky in the sense that they, they were pretty laid back. They really didn't push me or yeah. pressure me or they, they let me do what I wanted to do. So I, I really can't complain. Clark, you? What experience did you have, if any, that because the topic was overzealousness, was that yeah. did your parents pressure you? Into, and we've limited it to sports, but it could be anything. It could be school. If you want to expand it past because – we can yeah. keep it to sports and actually with the amount of time we have left rather than make this the entire topic for this podcast, maybe we should limit it to sports and say, Hey, great idea to explore this more on another one. But, uh, yeah, I can answer it for both very quickly. So no, never any pressure to succeed in sports or anything of that nature. Uh, and that would go for academics as well. Yeah. They wanted me to do well, but never a push to be, you know, an A student or, I mean, they, maybe they'd like that, but and, never a push and, on either count. And do you think that is good, bad, or indifferent, or just the way it is? I think it's good. I think it's good. Okay. Um, yeah, because I had enough of a, my own passion for ba- for baseball that I wouldn't have needed to be pushed or my father to be overzealous so to speak would i have loved to have had the opportunity to get more that probably wasn't so much available then as it is now like going to winter camps and winter baseball facilities that really didn't exist back then but no never any pressure by him at any time okay and i I mean i'm sort of the same to just to finish the topic off on a final note although paul you'll have the last word i guess um you know, I was not pressured. I do understand, though, parents keeping kids. I don't have kids, but my illusion of how I would be if I had kids would be that sometimes those kids are going to waver from something. And you're like, no, if if you have devoted a certain amount of time to this, 
unless they can explain that they hate it, you have to sort of try and separate the weed from the chaff in terms of, are they just lazy at this moment? Like piano, that, like you've invested a lot of time. You're not throwing that away. You're going to continue this as if it's mm -hmm. like going to school and finish this skill because you've already started it thus far. But if you can, if the kid is uh, lucid enough to communicate, I hate doing this, dad, I hate or mom, then maybe, of course, to give them the flexibility. But, you know, to not let them off easy just because something gets hard. I remember hockey got really f hard for me when I was uh, what, what turned about 11 or 12. Kids started to get really mean, and it wasn't fun anymore. And I gave up after it wasn't fun. Mm. But, I mean, if I had been pushed through, would I have been better? I was very good in my league, but it, it seems like everyone has that story. I was the top scorer in my league. Well, whatever. But, um, um, you know, maybe if they pushed me through, I would have been something more, but um, I left when it was not fun. And that's not necessarily a good or a bad thing. It just has repercussions is the way I see it. So, anyway. Paul, anything we didn't cover? We got one minute on this. Yeah, I think we'll just close off by saying that for me personally, I'm glad that I wasn't pressured throughout my life and i as a as a parent now i very much lead that same manner in the sense that now that my own child is in sports i try not to pressure him either so i think maybe it's one of those things where it's all in what you're used to if some people are used to that life and are used to being pressured and, and feel that it's a good thing then that might be something that they carry down to their own kids. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like for the three of us, you know, I think our, our attitude is, is more of a laid back approach and, and people should have the freedom and the ability to make their own decisions and decide for themselves as to what they want to do. If I was to summarize it in one sentence, it would be this. You can do anything you want, but you can't do everything you want. So if you want to be the best in the world at something – you got to give up everything else. And if a parent can't communicate that to their child, then they're doing them a disservice because then they might get to adults and realize they've missed everything else. This episode is brought to you by Pace Painting. Pace Painting, serving all your painting needs, whether commercial or residential. Reach Pace Painting at paintwithpace at gmail.com or via their Facebook page, Pace Painting, Inc. Or call Peter at 289 356 77 Four four, paint with pace. Our next topic: childhood idols. This topic comes from one of our listeners, Andrew. He's uh, a new listener, and he proposed a few things that uh, I'd love to get to. But one in particular was about childhood idols, childhood heroes, meeting your childhood idols. Um, did you get a chance to meet them? And if so, what sort of experience did you have? Yeah. Was it uh, underwhelming? Was it uh, what you thought it would be? Uh, Paul, why don't you start? Well, I'll start by saying that although sort of had childhood idols, but I didn't really, wasn't overly passionate about if there is any one individual that I had to meet or someone that I had a, a crush on or someone that, you know, by all means that that was something I, I had to, to meet this person. I, I didn't really have that, um, that, that feeling, especially not as, as a younger person, I suppose. Um, so I can't really speak of the fact that I haven't really met any of my idols. I have met in terms of famous people, 
Um, some have been athletes as you know, I'm a, a huge Toronto Blue Jays fan and I've had the opportunity to be able to meet, um, some former players, both past and, and present. And a lot has been said about when people meet celebrities, oh, that guy was a jerk or something like that. And it's, I, I guess one has to look at the context in which those individuals, in which you meet those individuals in the sense that maybe you meet them in, in passing. You have to take into account that maybe they were having a, a bad day or something like that, or, or, or the venue in which you meet them. Um, having just like a, a, a 10 second interaction, is that a fair, um, is that fair to pass judgment on a person by just having that, that very small exchange with them? Um, so the reason I bring that point up is because I, in doing a little bit of research on this topic, I came across some, some good quotes and there's the famous quote about you should never meet your heroes, um, alluding to the fact that you could be very disappointed when you meet the person that you have this, uh, this, you know, idolism or, or this person that you have put on a pedestal. Um, there's another great quote. You should never touch your idols. A little of the gold always rubs off. I always thought oh, that was them, a great I guess, one. And not on you. <laughs> well, yeah, because it's, it's depending on who your idols are, whether they're sports athletes or Hollywood celebrities, and I'm sure Mike will talk about that in a, in a moment. Um, whoever they might be, if they're politicians, business people, you you have a tendency to perhaps put these people on a pedestal or, or to, to think of them in a certain way, maybe their persona when they're on the camera, but when you meet them in person, they could be completely different from what you would expect them to be. Um, so I haven't really had that experience myself of meeting someone that I really idolized, but came away feeling disappointed. Um, but I'm interested to know about your guys' experiences and especially you, Mike, considering the, the business that you're in. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, uh, mine's pretty quick. Go so ahead, I met Clark. Tony Fernandez, who was, uh, my idol growing up, baseball player, shortstop for the Toronto Blue Jays, one of the best Blue Jays of all time. And, I got an opportunity to meet him when I was probably 30. He was doing autograph signing on a Friday night Blue Jay game before the game started. And I remember being there and thinking, okay, there he is. I see him in person. I was very impressed with his physicality. This was um, 10 years after he had finished playing, maybe 15 years. But he was still such a strong-looking man, like – and that was cool. I really like seeing the physical players like that, especially even when we were watching them when we were younger, seeing them walking out of their cars and into the stadium was always really amazing to me. Um, so for him, I, I, you know, I'm getting closer and closer in the line and I'm thinking, well, what am I going to say to the guy? Like I had bought a couple of baseball cards, Tony Fernandez baseball cards. I'd gone to a memorabilia shop that afternoon and brought it there and I had my little Sharpie pen or whatever. And I walked up to, um, up to him. It was my turn and my wife was with me at the time and he was sitting there and I passed the card over and, you know, he was in mode, that kind of robotic, he's signing mode, right? Like just he gets the card, looks up, says hello, signs it, you know, move on to the next guy. And so I'm thinking, what am I going to say to this guy? Am I going to say anything to this guy? Um, and so I said what I what was really the the truth, which was, yeah, I gave him the card and I said, it's great to meet you. I used to, I grew up 
based copying and imitating the way you would throw the ball to first base. Like I, I, I just fought on a school in the schoolyard when I played in regular, I was you, I wanted to be you. I emulated and physically what you looked like really influenced my style of play, how soft he was like so soft with his hands. And so that's what I said to him. And he was like, Oh, okay. And then he signed, and then it was like, next. <laughs> so, it was a little bit, a little bit disappointing in a way. Like, I don't know what I expected him to really say. I don't think I really expect him to say anything. But um, that was my probably, as far as an idol, absolutely idolized that guy. And I was so glad I got to meet him. Unfortunately, he passed away last year um, at a young age, 58, I think he was, which was quite sad. But that's really my experience with. And and it's interesting how you raise the point about, well, what I said before about how you have that five or 10 second interaction with that player or whoever it might be, if you're asking for an autograph or a selfie. And you wonder, even in that five or 10 seconds, that person can still make a difference and I use the example where, again, going back to, to the Blue Jays, uh, I guess it was two years ago, we went to the, the Jays Winterfest, which is um, an opportunity where you get to meet past and, and current players. And some of the players that um, we had an opportunity to take a picture with was uh, Roberto Alomar and Pat Borders, who were, were key players from the 1992-93 Blue Jays World Championship. And my wife had gone up to Pat Borders and said, wow, well, something to the effect of I was a really big fan of yours and and I really enjoyed watching you play when I was a kid and, and it's great to see you. And his reaction was was genuine when he said, oh, thank you very much. You know, just the, the way in which he, he shook her hand. Um, it really caught, you know, my wife commented that it really – really made it made a, a point with her in the sense that his reaction was truly genuine like he mm-hmm. he truly cared about the comments that that my wife had had provided to him and as a player you know 15 20 years later to that particular person that meant a lot whereas and I think he to, probably to been told that about 150 times before yeah, she actually yeah, walked up but so he didn't was, treat it like yeah yeah I hear that all the time thanks. Exactly yeah it was a genuine response whereas a lot of players would have been oh yeah thanks whatever or just okay and kind of moved on and yeah it's tough when it's like you're you're in an assembly line of of collecting autographs and you have that it's like the elevator speech. You have that five or 10 seconds to, to say something or, or to make an impression on someone that you had watched as a, as a kid or someone that right. you had admired. So it is interesting how that even that five or 10 second experience or that interaction can still, there, there's still opportunities for that person to, um, to make an impression on you. Yeah. How about you, Mike? And not so yeah. much celebrities uh, as much what? as. I, I'm- as much as childhood heroes, yeah, no, I get that. Uh, I'm going to, uh, I'll mention that this topic could be a five, six, seven hour topic for me alone. Mm. I do. Um, if uh, someone's a new listener or has not heard my old episodes, I work in the film industry, uh, special effects on set, and so, so I've had a, many opportunities to work with famous people that most people would know in the TV and television industries um, and uh, film. So me, uh, I've had quite some weird, I'm not going to go into everything. Um, 
I, I, I did want to, before I even mentioned it, I sort of wanted to touch on one of Paul's, the quote that he brought up about never meet your heroes. And, uh, it, that's never resonated for me, that quote, because I, what I realize is never meet the person you have in your mind and compare them to the person you're going to meet in real life because they are two different people and you don't really know them is the way I always thought of it. So it's in, in other words, if I don't go there with expectation, which is exactly what you said, Clark, I don't know what I was expecting. When you approach them with no expectation, how can they disappoint me? Because I realized that the printed word on that book or the way I see them play the game or the way I see them act as a character, that is not them. So yeah, that's a great point. And for me, I'll give you a perfect example. I started reading, reading, excuse me, Stephen King at a very young age. And, uh, wow. I mean, I absorbed so much of his stuff, uh, both books, audiobooks, uh, magazines, movies. I pretty much could tell you almost anything that he did and had read it before, uh, and his inter- interactivity with just the entertainment industry, up until maybe 2000. And then after that, I slowed down because just of work was getting much more pressing. Uh, well, on it chapter two, which I worked on from beginning to end, I sat five to six feet away from Stephen King for almost a day while making smoke in a room while he was doing his scene. He's got a cameo in that movie. And I was there that entire time. And I realized while I know so much about him, I feel like I know him, but he knows nothing about me, except that he can relate uh, in that the experience we were having at that moment, and that I work in the film industry, obviously, and finally that um, uh, we, that I obviously like his work, so he can bring up questions about things that I've observed through his work. Other than that, I have no expectations, so I sat there the entire day without talking to him. And at the very end of the day, he turned and looked at me and he saw that I was on a smoke machine and I know that he's been a director and been on set a few times. So he said, you know, try and do my best Stephen King impression here, which is not that great, but he'll go, you know, when I, uh, back in the day, uh, a long time ago, those, that stuff really smelled like shit. And he shook his head, <laughs> like look, looking down at the floor. And then he looked back at me and says, strange world we live in, eh? Like something like that. I was, I was thinking that's such a Stephen King thing to say because it, it is weird. I, I, I could have said, Stephen, I feel like you're my uncle for Christ's sake. I've known you for so long. I've heard your voice. I know your interactions. I know your personal history, but I didn't say any of that. I just said, it certainly is. And, uh, I've been in the industry for 30 years and you're right. It did smell like a lot of shit and it's come a long way since then because his observation was it did smell like shit and it didn't today. So just. Uh, cool. Uh, and it, because I don't approach them with expectations. Uh, yeah, Mike, people. I think that's a great comment yeah. that uh, how you how you remove that expectation aspect of it, which I don't think many people would. They, I know. They, Especially they if they're they a see hero, those, you know, if they're a hero. Yeah. So I have a question for you, Mike. Okay, so Stephen King, if he was one of your childhood idols, was there any part of you that wanted to go to Stephen King and say, hey, I'm a huge fan of yours. I love your work. Uh, did did I, that? Did, I, well, were you prompted to do that, or I, I would have let put it this way: if he had said, "Well, Mike, it's pleased to meet you. My name's uh, my name's Stephen, and I, you know, uh, 
I would have said, well, Mr. King, yes, uh, uh, I know you well. I've been a long admirer of your work. Oh, and if he started to go on and involve me in a conversation, I probably would have. However, for example, uh, I do take over conversations with famous people and talk over them. So I'm trying to pull myself back from that. Woody Harrelson, I basically met when I was working in Bangkok. And then someone said, hey, did you did you know that basically Woody got hello in and two words and then you talked for 20 minutes and Woody Harrelson didn't get to say anything? I'm like, actually, it's the third time I've worked with him. So we it's not like he remembers me, but there was the connection of our shared experience that we talked about briefly. And I'm like, yeah, I yeah, I did that. Well, pretty dumb. The other thing too, Mike. So Mike's working with these guys in a work capacity. Yes. Right. Yes. That's yeah, also that's important different. to know. So it has to be professional. Uh, on a, in a non-work capacity, uh, maybe the, there's only a couple people I've ever met. I met uh, Adam West, you know, Batman, at a convention. Yeah. That and he was so I loved Batman right from being a kid, and it took me, I don't know, uh, it took me about. Um, uh, probably 10 years to figure out that it was supposed to be a joke. <laughs> I took it so seriously. It's only when you're old. Seriously. Well, Batman, when I was a kid, Bat- 1966, uh, Adam West, uh, Burt Ward, Batman. And only when I was about 16 or 17 did I realize, hey, wait a second. This is a, f- this is a farce. This is supposed to be funny. I took it completely seriously as a kid. So I didn't see the, hey, you know, it's meant to be ridiculous. It was actually probably designed for adults more than kids. And as a kid, I just took it like this is this is this world. Um, mm. So I finally got to meet him at a comic book convention. I think it was the first comic book convention that became what is now the Toronto Comic Con. Uh, I think that was around '96. And um, when he was there, he signed a picture for me of where he's doing Batusi on the Time Life magazine, and he says. And I say, sir, it'd be, it's an honor to meet you. And uh, if it would mean a lot to me to get you to sign this. And uh, uh, oh, of, of, of course, I'll do that. Uh, what, what's your name, son? And I said, well, it's Mike, sir. Oh, oh here you go, Mike. You know, a funny thing, Mike. Uh, they're making that Batman movie. As you know, the, Bert, the Batman movie was coming out, the Tim Burton. Uh, so it wasn't 96. I guess it was earlier. He said, do you know what they said, Mike? Or it could have been tracing it back whenever he was in toronto there was a batman movie coming out in theaters and he said you know what they did they sent me this cease and desist order not to wear my batman costume or be batman because well that's uh you know that's uh getting in the way of uh what they want the marketing to be uh, i suppose uh oh because of well, his yeah. uh, he was participating in a very he, he says, comical what do you think farcical about, way yeah what do you what do you think when well, he wasn't dressed as batman at that point and he said <laughs> were you no, but he says, <laughs> what do you think about that, Mike? I, I, it's, I, and I can't quote him, but it was something like, well, I think that's a pile of shit, right? <laughs> and I was like, me too, sir. You're, you're the real Batman here, so uh, you be Batman whenever you want to be. You've earned it. And he goes, well, thank you very much. Sir. And he signs it to me beautifully, and it's a picture I still have. That's a great response. And then, yeah. half, this is the best part. Halfway through, I'm just wandering the floor looking around, and I look over, and there he is in full Batman regalia, walking around, shaking people's hands, taking pictures as Batman, almost like to say physically, fuck you, Warner Brothers, I'm Batman, I'll dress as Batman if I want. And he was, there was no hiding it, he was walking around proudly like a peacock, and God, I love that moment, it's a oh, great, wait, great so memory. Oh wait, so he had a uniform somewhere in a trunk? I guess and- so, he, he, but, but that he told me that, I guess he might have told other people in the line too. 
but you know, I, maybe he was saying it to each person who came up. What do you yeah. think about that? What do you look? Check this out. Do you, <laughs> can you believe that? And then it was like just presented himself like, Tish. but yeah, I, twelve people have anyway. said that I should do it. So God damn it, I'm doing it. So God, that's a cherished memory. And so far, uh, none of the people that I've thought of as heroes that I've met, Steve Bazette, who is the uh, one of the the artists on Swamp Thing, the comic, uh, was another I met. These. Uh, Clive Barker I've met uh, none of them had disappointed me because like I said I never came into it with expectation and uh, they ended up being more than I hoped they could be actually so there's there's my short answer and 10 podcasts worth of information to go deeper on that should you guys ever want to well hey maybe we will revisit this topic because uh, those were some interesting stories Mike I'd definitely be interested in Mm -hmm. hearing more and I think the listeners would as well so for sure Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I'd just end off by saying there's another great quote. It says, whoever said to never meet your heroes obviously had the wrong ones. So, you know, maybe that leads into the fact that if you don't put these people on a pedestal, then you don't set yourself up for disappointment. Yeah, it's been paraphrased so many times too. But it's essentially that if you have a vision in your head, I remember one of the quotes that I remember hearing in reference to that was someone met H.G. Wells. uh, And when he met him, he was a frail old man. And he had this vision of this, the, the vivacious books and, and, and the thoughts and the energy and the concepts. And then here's this person. I don't remember if it was the frailness but to do with his physicality or to do with his concepts and the way he was in person. But it's not fair. I mean, someone gets to think of a book over years and years and years. And then you're judging them like only someone like this could make that. T-. And then you meet them and it's, well, oh, they're not that. You know, some people are surprised when they hear that, say, uh, the author of Ender's Game is very right wing. And they're like, well, I love that book. How can he be right wing? That con- conflicts with the way I think. So it's there's a trap there. It's all in the expectation. You drop expectation, I find you won't be disappointed. Our segment, What We're Watching, uh, was a chance for us to talk about different shows that we are watching or a movie. And um, I'll share mine. Paul, this was actually one of the ones that you suggested Yellowstone Kevin Costner series my wife and I started watching it about uh, 2 weeks ago and we just finished season 1 yesterday so thank you for the recommendation enjoying it very much and looking forward to to watching subsequent episodes i would only say that for those that uh, I, my reactions to it uh, I, beautiful scenery fantastic acting it takes place in montana and um it kind of reminds me almost of a uh, a Sons of Anarchy cowboy edition, which it's probably not being fair to say that, uh, but there's definitely this sort of mob element to it of organized crime, and and these guys are bad guys, but they're they're good guys, but kind of bad guys. And I will say the thing that surprises me: it seems like somebody dies at least every episode. One or two people die or meet some violent circumstance. So I would say that was a little bit surprising. I wasn't <laughs> expecting that. That's good. Well, though. it's. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you're enjoying the series and uh yeah, season 1 is is excellent. Season 2 is even better. Like it, it's a series that just keeps getting better and better as it goes along. Uh so yeah, I definitely stick with what, it. What, what what's the y- premise of the show? Uh, like I don't really know it that well. I mean, you've sort of skimmed over it there, but can you give Yeah, it- so Kevin Costner plays this D- John Dutton or I forget his yeah, first John name. Dutton. Yep. John Dutton, he's a a cattle rancher. A, a really like n- f- important landowner 
Yeah. Um, it's all about the resistance of dealing with external forces that are trying to encroach and take over a lot of the land in Montana and build like commercial buildings or build housing developments. And it's the whole clash between old school Kevin Costner cattle rancher part of this like massively strong, important family in the, in the area, the Duttons. Yeah. And um, so it's a clash between that. And it, it's got a little bit of a, like I said, Soprano-ish na- nature to it where it's, these, these, yeah. Paul. I was, was going to say, it's interesting that you mentioned Sons of Anarchy because there actually is a connection there. Uh, the creator of the show, Taylor Sheridan, he actually starred in Sons of Anarchy. He was in the first oh. couple of seasons as one of the uh, the town sheriffs. Okay, cool. So yeah. yeah, there's definitely a there's a there's a connection there for sure. You know, it's interesting too. We're not I I'm not pulling us back to this topic, but it would be an interesting connection maybe for a future episode. You talk about a family lineage of cattle ranching. What if you want to be a golfer all of a sudden? Like, in a way, it's the <laughs> same thing. Like, no, sorry, son. You're you're raising cattle. It's our lineage. So mm. it, that topic, just to go back to it for a second, but not to go back to it. It's pervasive in family expectations, and sometimes it's the right thing, and sometimes it's the wrong yeah. thing. So anyway, well, it's, it's, back it's to the certainly, show. It's certainly pervasive in Yellowstone. If you watch it, then yes, yeah. that's a reoccurring theme for sure. It is nice. Oh, well, it's yeah. on my list. I'll I'll put it down there, and I've got a slot in one ninety five on the next to watch list. So I'll put it down. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, what am I watching right now? I'm I'm my wife is uh, being extremely generous and patient with me to go back and s- basically rewatch um Ozark so that I can catch up and get to basically the end or wherever it is currently right now uh the end the cutting edge of it uh I'm in like episode 2 of season 2 so I'm way the hell back there but and we I, because of my job it has been my job in film is very time um, demanding and trying to fit life, friends, TV, and everything into that. You have to be very organized. And I have been classically, uh, classically is the wrong word. I have been in the past not very organized, but I hope to change that. I'm actually making a very diligent effort to rearrange priorities and add in these things that bring zest to, to life, including watching shows uh, with friends and family and that kind of thing. So Ozark, that's where I am. Um, really, uh, I mean, Jason Bateman, fuck, incre- I was about to say effing incredible, but it's, he is, I love watching I love Jason him. Bateman. He is one of the best performers I've watched over time, even way back from uh, what was the family show that he was on with uh, his Hogan family. Yeah, but what was it? What was that show called? It eludes me for a split second, and I don't. Well, there was the Hogan family. There was uh, Silver Spoons. Silver Spoons. Yeah. He was also in his own show called It's Your Move, which I think lasted one season. What was who was Ricky Schroeder? What was that show? That's Silver Spoon. That was Silver Spoons. You mean Jason but Bateman was, was a, in Silver Spoons as well? Yeah, he was like a secondary character oh, okay. in that. What? Okay, but what was the show where he was? Uh, uh, see, it, they all merged together after a while. Not Mike Seaver, but he was the other kid. Didn't he have a family where he was like the son in a family TV show? 
Well, yeah, Hogan family, but it, there was other yeah, names for it that. Called? I think. Yeah, it wasn't Hogan, Hogan family. Hogan that... family. God damn it! No, <laughs> don't believe you. It was called the Hogan. Well, the show was it called. It sure Hogan. was. The Hogan Family is an American sitcom series that began airing in 1986, finishing its run in '91 for a total of six seasons. The Hogan Family. Really? How did I know that show? But yet, I never knew the title. Anyway, I, I to the, that eludes. I my brain is a weird thing sometimes. Anyway, so well, Jason Bateman, awesome and uh, great show. Uh, every episode draws me further into it. It's very complex. It's very well acted. Uh, and some characters scare the crap out of me, and some are just like I understand how they can keep getting mired into crazier circumstances. But like, they're real characters; they're fleshed out, and I'm interested to watch more. Yeah, I, I loved Ozark myself. It is such a great series, and you said you're on uh, season two, I believe. But season three is amazing. Like, oh. it just keeps. It's one of those shows that keeps getting better and yeah. better. And you will love season three. It's yeah. So action packed, and, and it ties a, a lot of stuff together. A very quick point. I've also. Uh, I'm usually about 15 years behind the curve on anything. I finally bought a 3D TV, and uh, so I'm collecting 3D movies and. Uh, getting uh, accumulating a few of them and then i'm going to get uh, a second pair and maybe a third pair of glasses and then start to do that i've tested it it looks really interesting and uh i can't wait to experience that so it's too bad now that they're that's sort of a dead thing they're still making 3d movies uh for release but they have sort of slowed down on the push of that now they've i guess they've accepted that it's not going to be widely adopted so it the heyday of that is seems to be in the rear view mirror. Okay, Paul, finish up. Uh, what are you watching? Yeah. So the show that we wouldn't say I'm watching currently, but I have watched uh, quite religiously was the crown. And it's only fitting that I wanted to bring up the, wanted to mention the the crown for today's episode, because uh, most recent news event was the passing of Prince Philip. And, uh, Obviously, the the crown. For those who may not have 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 watched this series, it, it's four seasons, and it follows the the storyline of the royal family from about 1947 all the way up to I think so far they're at about late 1980s. Uh, yeah. Season five and six are, are coming out soon. But anyway, it's one of those things that got me to thinking because. Uh, the show does a really great job of of bringing out the 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 personalities of certain members of the royal family uh certainly philip was was one that had quite a few storylines attached to him and although it is a fictional show one has to think that there is definitely some uh some connections or or it it is certainly a well researched and good quality show that I don't think they would deviate too far from the truth. But in any event, it, it's, um, it, well, apparently season three is uh, very, very much, um, it would be of all the seasons. Apparently it's the one they deviate the most. Hmm. Yeah. I'm sure they, they have taken some, some liberties, uh, which well, is they have to, to right? Yeah, How do they, they, know they have to the- for, for entertainment purposes. Um, but, well, and also because they just don't, truly don't know. They've never been able to sit the queen down and say, here, yeah. tell us what happened. She's well, probably sure, said yeah. she's never talked to anyone. Nobody in the family mm-hmm. would have ever talked to them, I'm sure. But it's interesting That's when you get, how- like, butlers and servants and drivers that have probably contributed to some of it. 
Yeah. But it's interesting how I think the crown has almost um, resurrected some of the interest in the popularity of the royal family. There's been a lot of outpouring of, of uh, grief over Philip's passing. And I think a lot of that is shows like the crown have uh, reintroduced the royal family to perhaps some of the, the younger generations and, and for younger people to have an appreciation for um, for the, the work and the incredible responsibility and, and the sacrifices that uh, the Queen and, and Prince Philip have, have made uh, over their careers as members of the royal family that have been lifelong. Uh, in the case of Prince Philip, he married into the royal family almost 80 years ago. Uh, so it, it really is um, an opportunity to kind of appreciate the, the work that the royal family does because they, they really do a lot for not only Great Britain, but for a lot of other uh, great causes and in, in, uh, throughout the world. So yeah, it's uh, I recommend the show uh, in terms of it's a good quality show, extremely well acted. Uh, but as I said, I just thought it was appropriate to mention it uh, to to signify that the passing of, in my opinion, a, a person that I had a lot of respect for was Prince Philip. Yeah, I wanted to share one personal thing on that. Um, on Friday, we were supposed to have a, me- a presentation by our CEO. So I work for a British company, and we were supposed to have a presentation at 9.30. I don't think it was anything super formal. Like, it wasn't like end-of-year results or anything, but... Um, at around 6 a.m., I saw there was an email that said that due to the passing of Prince Philip, we th- we will be canceling the meeting from this morning. Yes. For this morning. And I was actually quite surprised by that. I don't know why. Uh, I mean, it is a British company. But to me, I thought that was a bit odd that they would cancel a, our, our president speaking to us about business topics because Prince Philip died. And I realized, well... That's it's serious business in the oh, UK there? when the oh. member of royalty passes away. I don't think uh, like n- uh, Paul. Were you are you, are your parents British? Yes, like, born there. Well, yeah, my mom is is okay. born so born you, in England. So you probably no, of the sure. three of us have the best connection to understanding the importance of it. And then mm-hmm. I through Carolyn, who's European, she's German. I do understand that people from Europe, especially. Great Britain will have a different view of royalty than Canadians possibly could, unless they have lineage that's come from there and has ble- like really influenced their family here. Yeah, I just want to finish up just some of the things that they're. I noticed that they're doing as far as mourning. Uh, all the BBC hosts apparently are wearing dark, like almost funereal clothing, so black suits and black ties. Um, course they're doing you know obviously all the masks are being flown at half mast and um a lot of programming on the tv and regular regular programming has been rescheduled or changed due to to this and um one thing in my business i'm in the insurance business that they have said that um expecting a major impact on the um the day-to-day in britain or london will be when queen elizabeth passes that it will be a a shutdown of business probably somewhere up to a full week, which yeah. will have an, eco- an ec- economic impact oh, on, the, mm-hmm. on the economy. Yeah. There's, there's that, that has, that goes without a moment of doubt that that will be the case. And I'm not surprised that this had this, uh, that this effect either. That's it's, I mean, Carolyn's had a lot of little vignettes to, to observe and relate to me about it. And, um, it's, 
they've been around for our parents' entire lives, right? So both of them, it's uh, it's huge. In, in one yeah, sense. you think about that. So. Queen Elizabeth has been alive for our entire lifetime, and in fact, probably our parents' entire lifetime. Not probably, for sure. There's yeah, like well, they were. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. My dad is not ninety-five. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good point. Good yeah. point. Okay. Anyway, so uh, uh, well, whatever uh, God you believe in, may He uh, bless him and accept him up there and uh, rest in peace, Philip. Uh, yeah, I guess in Canada he was. Uh, there's probably some relation to how he rules over us, or was, you know, because Canada isn't uh, our prime minister is not the head of state. That's our. The, it, it's, I'd love to have someone on here who's really, really politically savvy on the Canadian system to explain. Is it the uh, the Queen, our our head of state, and their representative in Canada is? The governor the, general. The if governor I, general, if yeah, that's right. So, um, I mean, indirectly, there's the uh, grandfather, the one once removed great grandfather of Canada just died too. So, mm-hmm. anyway, uh, all the best to his family and uh, uh, our condolences from Canada. Oh, I, I want to take an opportunity just to remind people about our Facebook page and our email. If if you want to get in touch with us, you're welcome to email us at wetalkedaboutthis99 at gmail.com or visit our website at wetalkedaboutthis.net. You can find all our episodes there as well as some information about us. Visit our Facebook page for some pictures and also a great way to interact. It is a private Facebook page, but send me a a note if you'd like to be a member of that page. Always happy to hear from you. Topic ideas, suggestions, comments, please send them our way. Gentlemen, as always, when we get together, we fill up lots of time. And it was a pleasure to have you guys on. And I'm sure we will, again, get together sometime soon. Yeah, thanks very much for having me today, guys. I appreciate it. Yep, always a pleasure. This was fun. Blah, 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 blah. Edit this out. Join the meeting. And this is Mike talking at a point where Clark will edit out to connect with the ongoing part of Zoom. Unless he keeps it in. So while we're waiting for him, we're going to do some impressions of Jack LaFont. No, Jack, what's his name? Don LaFontaine. All right, join a meeting. Here we go. Join with video.